Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, as I said before, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Scott, the lead pastor here, and welcome, welcome home. This is your home, welcome here, and if this is not your home, we want this to feel like your home, so welcome home. Not this space, but the people of Grace Fellowship. We love to do life together and be at home with one another as well. But before we get into our conversation this weekend, a quick heads up. Next weekend, we're going to have a special guest with us. His name is Mike McKeever, and he's a, been a career missionary in Africa, in the Central African region. And uh, he's with one of our, our missions organizations, just going to come and connect with us. And this has been one of the desires of us as a young church is... Um, recognizing that we're a part of something that God is doing globally, not just here in Brunswick, but he's doing this in every continent where there are people, his gospel is moving forward, and we want to be a part of kind of that tapestry of the gospel across the globe, and so we've been prayerfully considering, God, is there a space that our church body could go and have short-term missions, trips, can have relationships with people that are there, and so um, a couple years ago, we had targeted Haiti, and that fell through because, well, the end of the world kind of happened in 2020, and uh, Haiti kind of shut down, and it's no longer really open for us, and so we're having some of those conversations with Mike, and uh, looking forward to him coming and just sharing the word with us next weekend, so make sure you don't miss that. We're in a series, we're wrapping up this weekend called Redeeming Your Time, Redeeming Your Time. It comes from a verse in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, be very careful how you live. Be careful how you walk through life. Don't be foolish, but be wise. Making the most out of every opportunity, or some of your Bibles might say redeeming your time. Paul would say that if you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've sworn allegiance to him, if you're saved, if you've been redeemed by him, that we really don't have the right to just kind of waste our life as if somehow it belongs to us. We've been bought at a price, and it's incumbent upon anyone who would be a Christ follower that we would seek to redeem it, that we would cultivate and curate a time that's going to maximize not just, not just our joy, but would also maximize God's kingdom in our lives. And so that's what we've been going through, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus and looking at how he used his time, because he was a busy guy. And yet he was always very present, he was purposeful, he was wildly productive in his life, and so we're looking at that, we're trying to pull out five principles, there's certainly way more, there's no less, but we're looking at five principles about how we can spend our time to redeem it. Today, we're going to step into the fifth principle, and it's really an extension of what we started talking about last week. Now, I had enough content for about three sermons for what we're talking about today. Even thought about extending the whole series. Maybe we'll pick it up and talk about it sometime in the future as well. But this has been something that's been deeply soul-satisfying for me as I've stepped into it this weekend. And it's drilling deeper into what we started talking about last week. And it was this idea of kind of silencing the noise and what it means to rest in the presence of of God. Specifically this week, I want to talk about drinking deeply from the presence of God and a concept that's called the Sabbath rest, the Sabbath rest of God. And so I want to talk about what it means, how, what Jesus had to say about it, kind of how Jesus practiced it, 
Where does it come from? How would we then take that into our lives and how we can kind of flow from a place of Sabbath rest? Now, I think this is gonna be one of those habits in life. It's called a keystone habit. It influences so many other parts of our lives that ultimately get better and richer when we have this kind of practice in our lives. Philosopher and author Dallas Willard, he said this, he said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life. Do you guys agree with that? Have you ever experienced that? He, he says, because it's the great enemy, we have to ruthlessly, I love that language, eliminate it from our lives. Guys, I gotta tell you. When I read that, when I read that, when God's spirit kind of confronted me, I feel so broken and messed up in this area. Like I look at all of these principles of Jesus' life and how he practiced his time and I just feel a little little screwy and sideways in all of this. One of the ways I'm really bad at this hurry thing is how I drive through the drive-through at McDonald's. The whole thing is an exercise in efficiency and fluency with the system. And so this is how I play this game. Before I ever get to McDonald's, I've put the order in on my phone. And so I put the order in, and then I pull up, and there are two lanes to choose from, right? Obviously, you're going to take the one that doesn't have anyone in it, depending on the time of day, because they don't always have people at each, like stocking each little speaker behind there, and so I always pick the one on the left. If there's none there, you know, if there's one open, I'll take that, but let's say there are two cars there. There's a Prius in the right and a minivan in the left. What's the right option? It's the Prius, because the person in the minivan might have seven people in there ordering, and now you've gotta wait for all of that business. So often what'll happen is the Prius will pull forward, I'll be right next to the minivan, and then as soon as they say, how may I take your order? uh, Mobile order for Scott. And I'm just waiting for them to say, you may pull forward so that I can get in front of the minivan. And then I go to the first window, and I, you know, they say, okay, here's your receipt, and then here's what the last thing you wanna have happen is to get to that second window and have someone say, will you pull forward to one of the parking spots? Because you know that's like a death sentence. You're instantly gonna wait another five to 10 minutes. So here's my pro-life hack, here's what I do. Before I get to the second window, I stop right in the middle, regardless of who's behind me, and I wait to see if they've put my order out on the ledge, like in the bag or the drink, so that they're just gonna hand it to me. It drives my wife absolutely nuts when I do this. Now here's the thing, it almost never has to do, for me, this like hurried status, almost never has anything to do with me going to an obligation or some event that I just have to be at. It's just a game. How quickly can I get through the checkout? It's a game for me when I go to the grocery store. It's an exercise in efficiency and fluency. Like, what's gonna help me get out of here the quickest? Which lane is open? How many products do they have on the belt already? It's a constant state of being hurried for me. You know, Jesus' number one commandment when someone asked him, really, what do I need to do in God's kingdom? You know what he said was number one? He said his number one was to love, to love well. It's the highest value in God's kingdom. And I want you to think about this, that hurry and love are incompatible. 
They're incompatible. Think about some of the worst moments that we might have as human beings comes when we're hurried. My worst moments as a father, as a husband, as a pastor are when I'm in a hurry, when I'm late for an appointment, when I'm behind on some unrealistic to-do list, when I'm trying to cram too much into a day. Into a day, I, I ooze anger, tension, nagging. All of this is the antithesis of love. And listen, if you don't believe me, the next time you're trying to get your type B wife and three young children out of the house and you're running late, just pay attention to how you relate to them. Does it look like love? Or is it far more in this vein of like agitation and anger and a biting comment and a, a rough glare? Hurry and love are like oil and water. They simply don't mix. That's why when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 tried to describe what love is, the first thing that he said was that love was patient. Hurry and love are incompatible. Now, Jesus was never in a hurry. He was busy. He had plenty to do. But the Gospels never show him being hurried. Author and pastor Kevin DeYoung said he was busy but never in a way that made him frantic, anxious, irritable, proud, envious, or distracted by lesser things. And Jesus' example shows us that hurry isn't just the great enemy of spiritual life, it's the great enemy of our ability to be purposeful and present and productive even. And so that leads us to this fifth principle this weekend. And the principle is this, that if we're going to redeem time in the model of our Redeemer, we have to eliminate all hurry by purposefully pausing from work to rest and delight in God's provisions and promises. Say that again. We have to eliminate hurry by purposefully pausing from work to rest and delight in God's provisions. See, because hurry is not only toxic to our emotional health and our spiritual lives, but it's also symptomatic of something else that's going on deeper inside of our hearts. There is something going on inside of my heart when I just have to hurry. When that time through the, the checkout lane, it's not a race. It's a qualifying event for me. <laughs> There's something going on. John Ortberg frames it this way. He says, hurry is not just a disordered schedule. It's a disordered heart. It's not just a function of your schedule. It's a function of your heart. Because hurry says, I need this to be done. If I don't do it, it'll never happen. I've got to plow the fields. I've got to make the sale. I've got to get the task done. And here's what ultimately I'm saying in my heart, in my life, when I step in with a hurried kind of presence, I'm saying, I have my will, and I want my will to be done according to my time frame. And the way I hurry and press into those things, that's always going to be me exercising my will, coming up against the pace of other people. It's about me exacting what I want. It's a disordered heart. So, is there some practice in the life of Jesus that helps mitigate from this chronic condition of our culture? Well, the answer is, well, heck yeah. There's lots of them. But I want to press into one of them this morning that I think has the power to change everything for us. And it's this issue and this word of the Sabbath. 
the Sabbath. It's not a word we use very often. Maybe you grew up in Jewish cultures or around Jewish relatives. Maybe you've heard it like that. But the Sabbath, here's what it means. It comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. Say that with me. Shabbat. All right, so from now on, to sound very sophisticated, you can call it the Shabbat. And here's what it means. It means simply to stop. To stop. To stop what you're doing. To stop working. To stop wanting. To stop worrying. Just stop. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles. If you don't have a physical Bible, the orange ones under your seat is our gift to you. Please take it. Turn with me in your Bibles to page 683 in the orange Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 23 through 27. And I just want to give you the background story, and then we're going to highlight the last verse here. Here's the setup. It was a lazy Saturday afternoon. It was hot with clear skies overhead. And Jesus was hiking through a wheat field with his apprentices. It was the Sabbath. And this is like one of those many stories of Jesus on the seventh day. It was built into Jesus' life rhythm was this core practice, an entire day every week set aside to slow down and to stop. But on this particular Sabbath, Jesus got in trouble with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were these super religious leaders. They had lots of rules. They looked really put together. See, Jesus' friends were walking through the wheat field, and as they were walking, enjoying their time, they started to pick grain from the wheat field and started to eat it. Well, the Pharisees saw this. And they took issue with the, how they were celebrating this because for them, picking the grain meant that they were working and you weren't supposed to work. The Pharisees had all these rules of these things you could or could not do. And to them, the disciples were breaking that. And in the process of all these rules that they came up with, the Pharisees royally missed the heart of God behind this practice. How did Jesus respond to them? This is what Jesus says. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a stunning line, and we read it and reread it thousands of years later. Often, many times, we misread it because in context, what Jesus was doing was he was beating up on this legalistic, guilt-ridden, heavy, kind of handed religious culture that had totally missed the heart of God behind this commandment to slow down one day in the week. That culture in this particular area was the exact opposite of our own. They had been so legalistic about following an exact rules of what was and wasn't the Sabbath that it ceased to serve the function that God had created it to serve, to restore and to renew the heart of his people. It became the opposite of that, and it was oppressive. It didn't restore them. See, the first century Jews, they needed to hear the second half of that commandment. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They had it backwards. They had the cart before the horse, so to speak. But if we fast forward to our 21st century, we're not legalistic about the Sabbath at all. Most of us don't even practice the Sabbath at all. A day off? Sure. Worship at church? When I can but Sabbath, very few of us even know what that idea is. But here's the thing. It predated Jesus by thousands of years. It was not new to him or to them, but it's simply new to us. 
This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees and what he would say to us as well. He would say this thing called the Sabbath is actually God's gift to us. God has given it to us. It's one of the best ways that we can eliminate hurry and find rest and delight in God's provisions for us. And so what I want to do is I kind of want to roll back out of the time of Jesus and look at where this idea of the Sabbath even came from, what it was, what it should be for us. Because the concept of Sabbath rest actually comes before there were any religious laws at all. Before Moses and the Ten Commandments and all of that stuff on Mount Sinai and all of that. The Sabbath was around before any of that ever happened. In fact, the Sabbath was around before sin ever entered the picture. Before the fall in Genesis chapter 3, it was there. It's woven into our DNA and who we are as humans. In Genesis chapter 2, you're welcome to go there with me if you want. It's at the beginning of the book. It'll be up on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 2 tells us this, that by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So in this Genesis account, God creates everything. He creates the stars and the animals and the oceans and the land and all of that, and the human beings as well. All in six days. But then he does something special on the seventh day. On the seventh day, it says he rested from his work. Now, I want you to catch this. God rested. Yeah, but you don't know how busy I am, and I have all these projects. As well. No, 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 no. God rested. But you don't understand my schedule. No, 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 listen. God rested. But I want to ask this question. Did he have to rest? Was he tired? Did he run out of steam? Did he need to check his social media feed? Did he need to like just check in on his other work schedule? No, he didn't need to do that at all. It's not because he was limited, but I would submit to you it's because he wasn't fully done creating yet. The very act of rest was a part of his creation. He had worked he had created, it was good, it was beautiful, and then he introduces this concept of rest as a part of what he was establishing. And so we see in God's pattern this kind of beautiful conjoining, this twisted double helix of work that is soul-satisfying and anointed and adorned, uh, adorned by God with something we're actually supposed to do to work with our hands and find joy out of that. And this concept of rest, which we should also embrace. And it was such a significant part of his creation that he set it apart. It says this in verse, in verse 3. It says, then God blessed the seventh day. This is a special day. This is a good day. If you observe this, this is going to be blessed when you do this. And it says he made it holy. Now, when we say that something is holy, here's what we say. We say that it's set apart. It's something that is unique. That's what it means to make something holy. And I want you to think even about Christmas. I don't love thinking about Christmas, but think about Christmas, okay? So Christmas is a day that we set apart as something different. In fact, the word holiday means a holy day. It's set apart. And what do we do on this day? Well, we don't do the same thing that we've always done. In fact, we stop from doing all of that. We enjoy a certain kind of food with friends and family. We come over. We just stop and deeply enjoy these moments together. That's what the holiday is. And God is saying every seventh day needs to be a holiday. Just like that. 
The same way you take Christmas and set it aside and say we're going to protect it and we're going to design it and we're going to act on it and we're going to enjoy it and we're going to feast on it. It's the same way that you do that. God says it's so important that you don't just do it one time a year. You do it 52 times a year. It is holy. This day is holy. Now this would have shocked the ancient mind. Because for the ancient mind, when you wanted to meet with God, you would go to a place. You would go to a temple, a cave, a rock outcropping. But God is saying, I'm not making a place holy. I'm making a time holy. Meaning you can meet with God and this is accessible for you no matter where you're at. Because you will always have this day. It is always set apart. God rested on the seventh day. He called it blessed. He called it holy. Now, there are two Hebrew words that are used for the word rest in Bible. The first that we talked about is Shabbat, and it means to stop working. Think of an hourly job, you know, where you clock out. Once you clock out, there's no more tasks to be done until you clock back in. That's kind of the idea. But the other word that he, the Hebrews would use for rest is the word nuach, almost like someone from Boston saying Newark, New Jersey. Nuach, say it with me just because it's fun. Nuwak, awesome, you guys are so smart, this is good. Nuwak, and it means this, it means to lie down, it means to settle, it means to dwell. It's not the same thing as clocking out from your hourly job, it's very distinct from that. It's like curling up next to someone that you love next to the fireplace. It's like on a spring day, laying down in the hammock, or when you get to grandmother's house for the weekend, unpacking your clothes to just be in her presence. It's not simply stopping, but it's the condition of the, whole, of the soul of being unhurried, of resting. That's what the Sabbath day is. I would submit to you that if we're going to understand what the Sabbath is, and this has been a journey for me in the last couple of weeks, this week especially, deeply soul-satisfying, and God showed me how I've been pretty off for the last 35 years in this area, then we need to understand that there are four parts of the Sabbath rest, and they are to stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. Say it again. To stop, rest, delight, and worship. Out loud, everyone. Stop, rest, delight, and worship. I want to talk about each of those and then think about how we incorporate that today in our time. The first thing, the stop. We've talked about that just a little bit. It means that you slow down your body. It means you specifically, you stop working. Whatever it is you do day in, day out, you, you stop that. It's a lot like when you get to Christmas. You know, If you were at Christmas and all of a sudden you were checking in, with the office, your family would be like, stop, <laughs> knock it off. Why are you doing that? You stop doing that. So if you're a construction worker, you put the hammer down. If you're a grant writer, you put the pen down. If you're a farmer, you let the fields, you let the animals tend to themselves. The Sabbath means that you stop. You stop working. You stop worrying all the things about all the time. Abraham Heschel said, you don't just rest from working but you rest even from the thought about work. And you stop wanting. This isn't a day to say, man, this is what I want to do this week. And if I just had this, and so I'm going to go buy it. And, and, and you're thinking about what you do or you don't have. It's a day where you just stop and enjoy what you already have. 
You know, when I think about my life, it actually takes a lot of courage to stop. It takes a tremendous amount of trust to not labor about and just keep spinning and spinning and spinning. If you're used to always checking the value of your portfolio and your Bitcoin, you have to stop and just trust that God's going to provide for you. If you're used to checking your email every 15 minutes, you have to stop and just trust that God is going to be able to keep the world spinning without you checking your email. If you have this mindset of, look at all the errands I have to do around the house, and the shutters need painted, and the lawn needs to be mowed, and the deck needs to be power washed, oh, and then I have to go to the grocery store, to stop doing that, to let your mind and heart go from that, but simply to enter into the rest of God in that moment, it means that you're going to have to trust Him and arrest kind of your own feelings of anxiety. Well, what if, what if, what if? No, no, no. God will help you get that done. God will be present with you. It takes trust to stop. We see that show up in the lives of the Hebrews. In Exodus chapter 20, this is a really famous passage where God and Mount, uh, meets with Moses on the top of Mount Zion. Uh, Zion. Think, of, um, think, of, um, uh, think of like, what's his name? Uh, uh, Heston, Charles Heston and, and Moses coming down off the mountain and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And this is what it says. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He reminds them, don't forget your parents and your grandparents who were in Egypt for generations and generations and they had this yoke of slavery upon them. I took you out of that. And then he tells them, this is how you're going to live. These are the rules for you. He tells them things like, have no other gods before me. Don't practice idolatry. Don't misuse my name. But then for one of the commandments that takes up the biggest chunk of the Ten Commandments, he says the fourth one, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. He doesn't command them to take a Sabbath. He says, remember it. Six days you're going to labor and do all of your work. That's good. That's blessed. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, neither you nor your sons or your daughters, not your male or female servants, not even your animals, not even foreign, foreign reside, uh, foreigners residing in your towns. Remember that you were a slave and you were constantly in a position where you had to work and work and work. See, there's going to be this gravitational pull within our hearts. We have to remember because we're always going to be drawn back into the anxious and the urgent. He says, I want you to remember it. Remember the Sabbath. Remember what it was like when your ancestors from sunup to sundown, seven days a week, never were given a rest, constantly had the whip being cracked on their backs. In that kingdom, you were never able to slow down, but that's not true in my kingdom, God would say. In my kingdom, every single person, not just the rich people, but the poor people, the slaves, the sons, the daughters, even the foreigners, everyone has access to the peace that I have to give to them. Take this every seven days. You know, it's fascinating it's fascinating, the scientists have now come to this conclusion that why is it every single calendar in the world has stood the t that has stood the test of time is on a seven-day cycle? Do you know that during the French Revolution, they actually tried to change that? 
they tried to use what was called the French Republican calendar, and it was this idea that we're going to do away with these old ideas and usher in some new way of thinking and doing things. And so they changed the calendar to be three weeks in a month, 10 hours in a day, and they changed it to a 10-day work week in order to increase productivity. So you had to work nine days to get one day off. And it was an unmitigated disaster. Productivity went down. Uh, mental health and suicides went through the roof. Relationships started falling apart. And they ultimately had to go back to the seven-day biblical pattern. And this isn't just some weird influence of Christian missionaries around the world. In every single culture, there's a seven-day cycle. Why is that? It's because God, from the beginning, baked it into our DNA. Our body literally needs to stop and catch up on sleep. It literally needs to rest every day or every seven days. First thing we have to do is stop, but the second thing is that we rest. We talked about that significance of rest, resting your mind, your body, your spirit. This is not a day to do a to-do list. It's not a day to go shopping. It's a day to simply rest, to sunbathe, to be in the hammock. It's one of my favorite things, to take a nap, to take a trip down the river on the tube just to enjoy resting. When you rest, when you Sabbath like that, here's what it means. It means there's a lot of sleep, amen, it's there's a lot of quiet, it means there's a lot of time with friends and family. Again, think about what Christmas is, a lot of time with friends and family, a lot of time in nature or whatever is restful for you. I once heard someone say that if you work with your mind, rest with your hands, and if you work with your hands, rest with your mind. So I know, I know some of you guys. I know that there are things that recharge you. I think for Rob, I'm guessing maybe part of the way that he recharges himself is by baking bread, and it is so good when he does. He's one of the best bed bre bread breakers. For some of you, it might be journaling on your front porch or, or reading a book. It might be going on a walk or a hike. It's going to be different for everybody. For someone like me, that I, most of the time I'm working with relationships and ideas, and so for me, I recharge by being creative with my hands. That's just how I refresh myself. The question that we have to answer is this. What will allow me to rest? What will allow me to rest? For my daughter, I asked her that this week, and she loves when she gets to mow the lawn on a riding lawnmower. And she just pops her headphones on, and she listens to worship music. out there singing, and she's riding. And that's a part of how she refreshes herself. Two hours of uninterrupted, just being present with her own body and her own thoughts. It's a delight for her. What is it for you? What is it that delights you? What is it that helps you to rest? You know, I find that absolutely freeing. I find that absolutely freeing that God would expect that of us, to rest and we get to pick what it is. The third thing that we're going to do, we're going to stop, we're going to rest. The third is we're going to delight. We're going to delight. You know, one of the ways we translate that Hebrew word Shabbat is to, to stop, but it can also be translated to delight. So think about this. Think about God creates for six days, and he stops, and all he does is delight in what he just made. Look at what I did. Look at this. That's a platypus. I know it's kind of like weird, right? But it's beautiful. It's glorious. That's a hippopotamus. I can't believe what I just made. That's glorious. And there's a rainbow and there's a flower on top of a mountain that no one will ever see. It's just there to glorify me. And he stops and looks at all that he's done and says, it's good. And he feasts from it. 
It's an artist who's delighting in his creation. Dan Allender is a scholar. He wrote an amazing book on the Sabbath. It's so good. He says in many ways that God's rest on the seventh day of creation is paralleled by the birthing process and this time after birth when the labor is finished and the bonding begins. The mother and the father gaze endlessly at their child. They had just gone through this challenging time, but then the baby's there, and all of a sudden, they're not thinking about what's happening after. They're not thinking about the to-do list. They're just staring into the eyes of their baby and going, oh, my word, we made this. This is beautiful. And they're just present, and they're just soaking it up, and they're simply delighting in that moment. God's creating, and he's delighting in what he's done. I've said this before, but as I work in my wood shop, one of the things that I'm working on right now is this hefty woodworking bench. It's going to weigh several hundred pounds by the time I'm done so that I can throw my 200 pounds weight in it on a rasp or a chisel or a hand plane, and it's not going to go anywhere. And so I spent 20 hours just milling down the cherry wood for this and another five hours with the mortises and the tenons. And as as I'm creating all of this, uh, hours will pass by like minutes for me, but the time that I get done, it's going to be this heirloom quality piece that I'll be able to hand down to my children or my grandkids. And whenever I finish something like this, I like to go out and I just... I'll put my hands on it and I'll hit it and feel how solid it is or or how it's constructed and enjoy the wood grain as it pops out of this. And many times I'll say to my wife, hey, come look at how the wood grain popped after I put the finish on it. Isn't it awesome how God made this? And I'm just enjoying the creation that I made. That's what God was doing after he created. He says, look what I've done. It's just delight. It's just joy. That's what the Sabbath rest is. It's a whole day just to celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. Where you basically pamper your soul with joy and you feed it with beauty in an otherwise ugly world. It has this dual idea, this idea of I'm going to stop and I'm going to rest, but I'm also going to joy in what God has given me. That's why this isn't a time to think about, well, I want this, well, I want, no, 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 no. You stop and say, God gave me this house and I've got this garden in the back and it's so glorious and it's so lovely and I'm just going to soak that in. See the problem I think as I grew up, as I grew up I I would often think that God was trying to spoil my fun. (laughs) That he was just a killjoy. He didn't want me to have a good time. But what so impresses me as I read this is it's the exact opposite of that. Jesus says that God gave you the Sabbath. It's this gift for you to receive because God loves you and he wants you to have rest. Nothing can be further from the truth. He's not here to kill our joy. Do you know that? Do you know that he wants your utter and abject joy? Students, do you know this? Do you know that that's what he wants for you, and he's not willing to let you settle for anything less than that, and sometimes we experience his resistance, not because he's trying to kill your joy, he's not just trying to say, hey, no, you can't have these other relationships, he's saying, I want you to experience the deep, soul-satisfying joy of being in a committed relationship where you're both growing towards me and how sweet that's going to be, he's not trying to take your money from you, he's trying to say, I want to set you free from that being a, a slave master in your life. He's not trying to kill our joy. He's actually trying to maximize it. Can I just tell you how refreshing that is for me in this whole concept of Sabbath rest? Because the Sabbath for me growing up was always an obligation. 
When I was growing up, I mean, there were blue laws were still on the books, right? So many times the grocery store and almost anything but the gas station was closed. It's not really like that. Now the only thing like that is, well, Chick-fil-A. It's like, oh, man, right? But it was like that everywhere. Everyone, and it was just like I would stop, and it was just like a day to be bored. Like God was somehow trying to punish, punish us. That's not it. We're missing the heart of it. The Sabbath is a gift, a day to delight. John Piper says this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we feast our souls on the goodness of what he's given us. St. Augustine writes in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And many times this simple act of delighting in what God has given us brings him glory. Think about a chef that spent time to create a meal for you. And they bring the meal to you and then you eat it and you're like, you don't want to like show delight, you know, somehow as you eat this thing. What's going to bring the most glory to the chef when you say, this was amazing. And when you just enjoy what they gave you and you say, this is the best This is the best bread I've ever had, Rob. Thank you. It just brings him glory, and it brings God glory when we look at the things he's created and we just enjoy it. That brings us to the last point. We stop, we rest, we delight, and then lastly, we worship. We worship. It's not just a day to read a novel. It's a day when we center ourselves in God's heart for us, attuned to his presence. It's a day for worship, but I don't simply mean that you come in here and you sing songs. That's great. It's actually more comprehensive than that. Applied to the Sabbath, here's what it might mean. It might mean that you design a day where you say, we're going to go walk the towpath today. We're going to go all the way to Harper's Ferry and all the way back in the fall just to enjoy picking pawpaws along the way and to look at the colors of the fall or the wineberries in July just to slow roll your way there. It might look like these transcendent moments where we, in the spring, start to awe and wonder over the flowers popping up and him just showing his creativity. Oftentimes, there's going to be some connection with nature in the Sabbath rest. You know, some of the most transcendent moments of worship that I've had have not been in church. They've been those moments where I was pushing my kids on the swing and their little toddler laughs were just belly laughing the whole time and time goes in slow motion and you just revel in it. Sabbath worship can look like chasing your grandkids around the playground. It can look like watching snowfall in all of its silent beauty or, or exclaiming when you see heat lightning or a rainbow after a storm. Wow, God, you did that. That's amazing. A few weeks ago, my family went to the Smithsonian Natural uh, Museum of Natural History. Now, the first floor is like an altar to natural selection, but the second floor has a whole segment on um, minerals and gems, and it's one of the most amazing places you can visit. Hundreds and hundreds of just selections of different types of minerals and gems, things they've mined out of the ground, cut in half, polished it up, and as you look at each one, you think, oh my word, look at that pattern, look at that color gradation, look at the crystal and how it wrapped around this other one, this is so unbelievable, and this was buried in the ground, I mean, how many percentages of all of the minerals and gems that exist have we ever looked at, it's probably infinitesimally small, and all of these gems exist under the ground simply because our God is a God that loves pizzazz, 
And no one's ever going to be there to say, well done, God. But we get to pull them out of the ground and look at them and say, Lord, look at what you have done. I was having a worship session on the second floor of the Natural History Museum. That's what Sabbath rest is. To stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. To stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. Now the problem is this. The problem is way too many of us settle for a day off. Now this next point is very critical. The Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. What's the difference? Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, paraphrase, has a name for a day off. He calls it the bastard Sabbath. The illegitimate child of the seventh day in Western culture. On a day you don't work for your employer in theory, but you still work. You run errands, you catch up around your house, or the apartment, you pay bills, you make an Ikea run. Well, there he goes, five or six hours right there. And, and you see a movie and you kick a soccer ball with friends, you go shopping, you cycle through the city. All of that's great stuff, all of it. I love my days off where I get to do that. But those activities don't make up the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, we stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. We stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. I want you to hear this quote because I think it pulls it together in such a freeing and beautiful, beautiful way. Dan Allender in that book called The Sabbath, so good, I highly recommend it, especially if you have a poetic heart. This is what he says. I, I have it up on the screen because it's so good. He says, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. Guys, that's not what I thought it was. 42 years old, I've been following Christ since I was five. I've never heard this before. It's an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it's the best day of the week. It's the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Listen, Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it, to make it holy. Because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. So Jesus is walking through the fields with his disciples, enjoying the sunny day, going, God, you created food that grows off of a plant, and they pick it and they delight in it, and they enjoy it. And the Pharisees point a finger at them, and Jesus says, no, you don't, you don't understand. God wants our delight. He wants to restore and renew and redeem. And we just have to stop and rest and delight and worship. The challenge is we have to design that. We have to choose that for ourselves. And it takes unbelievable courage. If you're new to this thought, I, maybe you guys have this nailed down. I sure don't. For some of us, as we think about this, this is the challenge that I want you to start to orient your heart around is how can I take a Sabbath to make it holy? And that might be overwhelming to think about 12 hours of that. I would have a hard time with it. So maybe you start with a four-hour block. And the question that we have to answer is what could I do 
for 24 hours or those four hours that would fill my soul with a deep, throbbing joy? What could I do that would make me spontaneously combust with wonder, awe, gratitude, and praise? That's the Sabbath. And so the challenge for all of us is that we would step into that. If we're going to redeem our time, it means that we're not constantly go, 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 go. God wants that gift for you and for me to take the Sabbath, to stop, delight, rest, and worship. Here's what we have to do. We have to design it, we have to defend it, and we have to deploy it. You have to design it. So that means you'd have to pick the time. When can I actually do this? Historically, in the Jewish tradition, the day begins on sundown. So Sabbath would begin on Friday at sundown to uh, sundown on Saturday. That would be the time that they do that. For you, maybe that works wonderful. For me, the weekends are my Super Bowl. Like, this is when I'm on. So this is this not a reasonable time for me to do that. I, I have to take it on my Monday is my Sabbath day. Can you make that a weekly target, whatever that day may be? Can I lead my family to do this together? And then you have to prepare for it. So they would prepare. And we see this in the book of Exodus as well, that God would provide food for them, this stuff called manna and quail. They would gather it on the day before, two days worth, that it would last them for the next day so that they wouldn't have to do the work that day to actually make it happen. Can I be productive enough? Can I be forward-thinking enough that I'm going to that I'm going to design that, but then I have to defend it as well because there are going to be things that try to get in our way. They just are. Can you defend it? And then lastly, just deploy it. Stop, rest, delight, and worship. So that's the challenge. This is probably the best challenge you've ever had in church. Right? I'm not asking you to give. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm actually asking you to not do. And that's harder for us because it takes courage to step into that. Right? Are you brave enough? Are you creative enough? To think about that? I've, I'm in a process right now. Um, there's a, a national grant that helps pastors take sabbaticals. A very similar word to this. And so uh, there's finances that they, the grant provides to help with that. But they want you to write it out and design it. And there's a, a dollar number behind that. So I've been asking people in Life Group, and I asked at a, one of our ministry partner meetings, I said, what would you do you had $30,000 in three months simply to make your soul sing, to feast your, like, what would it be? I want to go hot air ballooning. I want to learn to spelunk. I want to go scuba diving. I just want to look at the fish at the bottom of the ocean. I want to go scale Mount Everest, whatever it is. What would you do just to satisfy your soul? It's hard to think that through. Maybe on the way home, you could ask each other that in the car. What would you do with three months? just to satisfy your soul. What would that look like? Did you know that's in the heart and the mind of God, that we would have that kind of rest? Are you creative enough to fill your heart with deep, throbbing joy? Are you disciplined enough? Guys, my heart has been longing for this. I don't even know what it was called. But as I, like, exist and I don't have weekends, I find myself, like, I don't, I'm not playing a violin here because I have an awesome job. I love to do what I do. I just don't have weekends. And so I would find myself saying, well, I, I, don't, I would love to go camping. I would love to do these things. We just can't. And I would ask my family, can we make this happen? And I didn't even realize what my soul was asking for. My soul was asking for that kind of Sabbath rest to stop, rest, delight, and worship. You know, this is what every advertisement we see offers us. Buy these towels, and you'll be t pampered when you are at home. Go on this spa. Here's this vacation. You'll finally have the Sabbath rest that you're looking for. If you just buy this gadget, and it will do this thing for you. 
We look to the outside, but God says this is available for you all the time. It's what our hearts are longing for. I just want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with a passage, and then we're going to just respond by singing the song we just learned. I want to leave, this you with, I want to leave with you this passage here in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. He says this, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Let's make every effort. And there is debate about whether or not we are bound to the Sabbath or not. Is it a commandment of God? Listen, it doesn't matter. It's a gift from God. Why would we not want that for our lives? Make every effort to enter that rest. Let me pray for us, and then we'll worship together. God, of all the things that we've talked about in this series, I don't know why. This is the thing that most energizes me, but then also most overwhelms me. How could I possibly do this? (laughs) Is what it feels like. God, you are an empowering God. Thank you that you love us enough to care about the conditions of our soul. What a joyful, joyful thing. God, would you allow us to enter that kind of Sabbath rest this week, to set aside that time as a family, as a couple, as an individual, where we stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. Empower us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.